Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast aims to explore, debate, and understand a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students. We look at issues in South Africa, Africa, and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject, and we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Mahita Ikani, and I'm your host. My name is Jennifer, and I'm studying Accounting Sciences at Wits. I've been aware of the protests that have been happening, however, I don't think I'm as aware to the harassments happening because... Maybe it's, I don't know if it's a good or bad thing, but more likely a bad thing that because of my degree, everyone's just focused on getting their work done. You don't really grasp what's happening around your surroundings. Honestly, I don't feel safe anyway um, from university to going out to Brahm from when I'm driving. I feel like we live in a society where you always have to be on the lookout. But campuses should be safer. Maybe there have been policies now in place to try and make it feel safer because of the obvious outbreaks and things but at the end of the day there's always that smart um, inverted commas person that will find a way to try break through the system and then make our system the environment not safe so yes people can put things in place but at the end of the day it's not 100% certified. In today's episode we think through questions of gender violence on university campuses a topic that has received a lot of attention in the news in the past couple of weeks especially with events taking place in Grahamstown at the university currently known as Rhodes. What kind of support systems are available to students or staff who've suffered harassment, rape or any form of gender discrimination? To help us think through these questions we have two guests who both work for the Gender Equity Office at WITS. Maria Wanyane is a clinical social worker, and Charlene Bjorkos is an investigations and advocacy officer. Our discussion today focuses mainly on institutional forms of support available, but it's worth noting that some of the materials we discuss might be triggering for any listeners out there who may have survived gender violence or harassment. So a warm welcome to our two guests today. We have Maria Wanyane and Charlene Bjorkas, who are both members of the Gender Equity Office at the University of the Witwatersrand. They've both very kindly agreed to join me today to talk about questions of gender violence, gender equity, sexual harassment, and so on at universities in South Africa today. So perhaps we can, we can start off by asking you to just give us a little bit of background about the Gender Equity Office. What is it? What is its role, and when was it established, and so on? The Gender Equity Office was formed in 2014, following a commission of inquiry that was set up by the Vice Chancellor to investigate allegations of sexual harassment on campus. And the commission made a recommendation that in order to deal effectively with issues of gender-based violence, there needs to be a dedicated office addressing issues of gender-based harm. And that's how Gender Equity Office came into being. We have four staff members, a receptionist, a director, Jackie Dukat, a legal person, Janine Biergas, and Maria Wanyani. And the main focus of Gender Office is to provide support to 
anyone on campus who has experienced any form of gender-based violence. We provide psychotherapy. We also provide legal advice. We also engage in advocacy to create awareness of gender-based violence on campus. We also investigate issues that people bring forward to us. Okay, so a wide range of support provided to anyone who's involved in the university community. So it can be a student or a staff member. It can be a student or a staff member, and it doesn't matter where the incident happened. If it has happened off campus, we still provide support. If it has happened on campus, we also offer support, even if it has happened in a private setting. Okay, so can you give us a, a rundown of the kinds of problems and issues that people can come to you with for support? There are a number of issues that people come to us. For example, people present with issues of homophobia, issues of sexism on campus, marital problems, rape, unwelcome nonverbal conduct, or unwelcome verbal conduct. So it takes a wide range of issues that people present to us. And depending with the issue, we then provide the appropriate support. For example, sometimes we have a student who has experienced sexual harassment off campus. Let's say rape. Maybe they were raped by a stranger off campus and they come to us. Even though we do not have the power to investigate the complaint because we do not have jurisdiction over the perpetrator, we are able to provide the student with psychosocial support. We are able to make sure that they get to Malpap Hospital for medical legal support as well. And we're able also to help them at a practical level around their studies because sometimes the incident happens on the day of an important test or exam and the student missed the test. So we are able to interact with the department to rearrange so that they get a chance to write and then provide them with ongoing support to deal with the challenges of the trauma. Okay, so counselling and support for anyone who's been a victim of some kind of attack or some form of harassment is a really important part of, of what the GEO does. It's a very important part that we do because we do acknowledge that any traumatic experience has an impact on your ability to function effectively. And that is why we provide the service to anyone who is associated with this. I mean, considering the, the very high rate of gender-based violence and harm in our society, it seems like a really important role that uh, this office provides to, to students and staff. What about matters that do fall under the jurisdiction of the university? So you've explained that if, if something happens off campus to someone, you can't necessarily investigate or take action against the perpetrator. You can only support the victim or the survivor in a variety of ways. What about if something happens on campus? Because I, and sadly, I think that is the case that in many universities, not only in South Africa, but everywhere, there are cases of some form of gender-based violence or harm that takes place on campus. So what then can your office do in that scenario? Okay, so in those instances, then I would investigate the matter. So both processes begin the same way. So Maria would still be the first person seen by the complainant. Just to say that our office is very complainant-driven, so that's where our main focus, main concern is. Once they've seen Maria, I then sit down with them, although we actually more or less have that conversation together just to avoid a person having to relive the trauma more times than is necessary. Maria will then do the counselling side of things. I will then start the investigation. So 
I know there was some misunderstanding earlier on in the year that students or staff member would have to investigate everything and bring the evidence forward, but that's not how we work. I just need to be told, this happened to me on this day at this place. These are some people that witnessed it. And then I will investigate, have conversations with any witnesses. If there is a camera in that part of campus, get CCTV footage from campus control. So I do all the legwork. And then I provide a report. So I have 30 days from the time a complaint comes to finalizing the report. So we also try to keep time limits really short. Once I have a report then we discuss as an office whether or not we think there's enough to go ahead with the disciplinary hearing if that's what the complainant wants and then we put together a hearing panel. The panels are slightly different depending on if it's a student or staff member who's the perpetrator. So for students it would be a professor from the law school a member of the Sexual Harassment Advisory Committee and an SRC rep. For staff members, it's a member of Senior Executive, Law School and a SHAC member. So just the SRC and SET members are separate, different rather. And SHAC is the Sexual Harassment Advisory Committee. And then the hearing happens, so it's not a criminal process so it's not adversarial as it would be, you know, if it was a matter legal we're running with. It's more of an inquisitorial process. So the, the hearing panel will use the report that I've compiled with all the evidence and statements and have conversations with the complainant, the perpetrator, any witnesses, and then come to a decision based on that. The complainant and perpetrator aren't in the same room unless the complainant wants the opportunity to speak to their perpetrator. But generally, the cases we've run, no one has opted to stay in the same room as the perpetrator. Um, so then we have video link for them to hear the questions being put to them and write down any questions they may have. Then the, the hearing panel make a decision on what the sanction's going to be. Either they find for misconduct or no misconduct. If there's no misconduct, that's the end of the matter. If there is misconduct, the sanctions can be, Maria's designed a gender sensitization course, so we insist that that form part of the sanction. And that's about a 10 week course, but Maria's finding that it goes a bit longer as well, because really individuals are learning about themselves and changing how they view gender equity and gender-based harm. So it's I think it's an amazing course that she's put together. And so that's one of the sanctions. Another sanction could be suspension, and that would be for both staff member or student, expulsion for a student, dismissal for a staff member. Um, and those really are the only sanctions that we ask for, because I don't know that a fine would justify a gender-based harm. So that's not one of the sanctions we go for. But also we do realise that the sanctions aren't perfect and we do struggle sometimes to get what we feel would be justified sanctions. But it, I think it's just a mindset thing on campus that eventually we need to start viewing gender-based harm as seriously as it is. Our mm -hmm. office is three years old. I think it's just a case of constantly educating people around why gender-based harm is such a problem, why we have to come down hard on perpetrators of gender-based harm. Mm.
So I'm going to come back to the gender sensitization course, which I'd really like to hear more about. But the process that you've just described, I mean, it sounds very detailed and very comprehensive, but I'm just kind of putting myself in the place of perhaps quite a a young student, a first or second year undergrad, or perhaps even a staff member who feels perhaps intimidated by being junior or being perhaps not yet confirmed or promoted or in some way like a little bit vulnerable, right? And that process does sound a little bit intimidating. So, I mean, what would your advice be to someone who might be listening who may have experienced some form of harassment or harm and who might for some reason or another be too scared or intimidated to go through an entire process, what what would your advice to them be? I suppose firstly that it is a confidential process. So at no point does anyone in this office tell anyone what's happening unless there's a safety issue. So, you know, if in a case we have to get a restraining order against someone, so restraining order inverted commas, we call them suspension orders on campus. If we'd have to get a suspension order against someone, then at that point, a DVC would need to know about it as well to sign off on it. But beyond that, anything that happens in this office is confidential. There's absolutely no obligation to go forward with a disciplinary hearing. So if, in Maria's example, someone comes in and says that they have been sexually assaulted, they would like support from Maria, but they don't want a hearing to go ahead. That individual does not have to take part in any investigations. Our office, however, does have the authority to proceed on an investigation and hearing apart from the complainant. So at no point do we force you into taking part in the process or insist you have to do something. As I said, our main concern is the well-being of And there's absolutely no point in forcing someone to go through a disciplinary hearing that they don't want to go through while Maria's trying to help them heal. We're just making things worse, really. So I don't know. I think that would be my main thing is that coming to speak to us is not a commitment to go forward with any sort of action at all. Right. So a a person who suffered some kind of harm can come and get the necessary support and they can get advice on whether or not they want to go forward with a more formal process. And sometimes you don't even have to go the formal route. Let's suppose that you have an issue with someone, they're behaving inappropriately, or you don't just like their behavior and you want some sort of intervention. We are actually, with your permission, we are able to call in the person and talk to them about their behavior, sort of educate them, show them that it is inappropriate and that we are concerned about their behavior. So we talk directly to the person who's been accused. So we don't just say, you don't want to go the formal route, therefore there's nothing to be done. We call in the person, have a frank discussion, open and honest discussion about their behavior. And we've done that in the past. And we've had students actually acknowledging that, oh, I was not even aware that my behavior is inappropriate. But now that I am aware, I will reflect on it and monitor my behavior. And the feedback that I usually get is that the behavior has stopped. That's really interesting. So in your experience, when someone has complained about someone's behavior and that person has been invited to come and kind of learn, <laughs> I guess. Reflect, yes. Reflect, you, you found that experience to be positive. It's been very positive for both staff and students. Right. And sometimes there are situations where there are issues at the department, especially around interaction between men and women. 
and you find that maybe women find the behavior of a particular individual very intimidating, you know, we are able to talk to that person to say, look, there are issues of power dynamics here, there are issues of gender, let us explore a better way of interacting. And sometimes we even engage with the department to say, look, it seems there is a challenge in this department around issues of gender. How can we deal with it in such a way that it is a welcoming space for everyone? And departments have been receptive to that kind of intervention? Yes. Sometimes we do pick up that there's an interplay between issues of gender and HR, and that sometimes there's a need for HR to intervene around other matters. Mm -hmm. So if that's the situation, we will do our part, maybe in terms of support, advising, but then refer the matter to HR to say, I think we think this is your area that you need to attend to. Mm -hmm. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, I've sat in so many meetings and felt frustrated mm. by the way male colleagues have spoken to me or treated me or said, you know, sexist things, and I've never known how to handle it. Mm. You know, and sometimes it feels like such a small thing, like, you know, not necessarily worth reporting or complaining about in a formal way or bringing to the gender equity office, right? Something that I've always thought, oh, I just need to deal with it somehow, these patronizing comments or different ways of undermining my authority or my expertise or whatever. And it's really interesting that there is that possibility of saying, okay, let's just pause here and let's look at how this committee works or how this department works and let's try and sensitize some of our colleagues to some of the gender issues that are at play. And I think it is important that people come forward and report because it sort of helps us also to know what the pattern is on campus. Because I think you need to remember that gender dynamics are reflected in every aspect of society, including higher education. So if you keep quiet and you don't talk, it creates the impression that there is gender equality on campus. Whereas when you come forward and raise issues, you are then saying, yes, we are talking about gender equality, but in practice, these are our challenges. We are then in a position then to engage and even to monitor the situation on campus to say, these are the challenges that our academic staff members are facing and let us come up with a way of dealing with them. So it is important that we speak and break the silence and respect what we are feeling and don't undermine it by saying it is minor. It is yeah. important. Especially because, I mean, we've consulted with people who are saying, you know, to speak to you, oh, it's just how guys are going to say things. We need to just accept that and move on. And you'll find that for 30, 40 years, there's a lecturer who's had the same sexist attitude towards women who all felt like they could not say anything. And realizing that that silence just creates a cesspool of sexism, right? So he has now created a safe space where he can say and do as he pleases because no one's going to challenge that. And I, I you know, if anything, I'd love for our office to allow women gay persons to know that you do have a voice and if you do want to speak out against it we will stand with you that you're not you're not the sole voice who is trying to break the patriarchal chains of an entire institution um, and I think that's important as well is that there is support for individuals who do come forward to say this isn't okay that's really empowering you know and I think you know, for those of us who haven't necessarily experienced direct physical harm, right, but who've experienced sexism in other ways, we sometimes feel that our what, how, what we've suffered is, you know, less pressing or less important. Mm -hmm. 
and that for those reasons, you know, we want to make sure that we don't kind of take up the airwaves or the space with our complaints when there are people who've really been severely traumatized in really, you know, severe ways. But I think what you're saying is that we need to address every manifestation of, of sexism or homophobia that exists and really work towards gender equality on all levels, which is really progressive attitude and approach. Every aspect is important. Mm-hmm. A lot of people tend to focus more on rape. If someone has been raped, everyone will be supportive and very understanding. But if someone touched your bum on your breast, people are like, but why are you complaining? Get over it. It's such a small thing. And I want to say all forms of gender-based violence are serious and need to be taken seriously. And everyone who's experienced such behavior experienced some sort of trauma and they need support. And that is why we also go all over campus talking to students and staff during their lecture, just to get the conversation starting. Because a lot of people find it hard to come forward to report, but also to talk about it in everyday space. It's like a taboo subject, even though it's something that happens in everyday space. So we want to break the silence by going to students during their lecture and presenting to them, but we also go to staff meetings to engage with members. It's really important work. So can I come back to the gender sensitization course that you designed? Maria, can you tell us a little bit more about that and how, how does it work? It is a course that we've developed recently because we're realizing that through interacting with the perpetrators, a lot of them need some sort of space to reflect on their behavior. It's not enough to say to them, we're expelling you, we're suspending you, or we're giving you a restraining order. In addition to all the other measures that we've taken, we need to create a space to have a conversation so that one they reflect on themselves, on their behavior, how they can change, but also get an understanding of gender-based violence, their impact on the complainant, but also their behavior on themselves. So it's sort of a space where we talk about who am I, where do I come from, and what makes me violent, and what are the drivers of my violent behavior, and how can I gain control over these drivers? And people look at what do I want, what are my values? What do I have to put in place to achieve what I want? So it's more of a deepened understanding of the self in relation to gender issues and in relation to the world and also taking responsibility for your behavior. Amazing. I mean, the only way to end gender-based violence is if those who commit it stop doing it, (laughs) right? Exactly. So it seems like a really, really important intervention. It is a very important intervention because if you look at the kind of remedies that we have, if we give you a restraining order, or if we expel you from that, but we don't give you an opportunity to reflect on your behavior and to learn. Yes, you are of this university, but you go to the broader society and you continue with the very same behavior because in your mind there's not been any shift, any reflection. So you're still holding on to the belief that your behavior is correct. And then you're likely to feel victimized because you've been dismissed or expelled or in some other way sanctioned. And that this kind of false sense of victimhood that I've been ganged up on. Uh, you know, those women have kicked me out yes. and I didn't do anything wrong. And you continue with that behavior now off campus. I exactly. do think it's important, though, to say that we wouldn't push for the gender sensitization course in the case of rape, just because you are now actually a threat to campus. Mm. So we would want expulsion in an instance of rape right. because we have to also... Paramount is the greater of its, you know, of its culture. 
So perpetrators yeah. of which kinds of offences would be most likely to take a gender sensitization course? Anything but rape. Right. So it's, it's so violent, cyberbullying, right. homophobic comments, any sort of that stuff. Sexual harassment of some yeah. sort. And that that links up again with the hearing panels being very resistant to give too harsh a sanction. And so this is the one tool we have to at least try to change how a person views their interactions with others. I mean, it does make sense. It does make me wonder a bit about whether someone who commits a rape has a possibility of changing their attitudes and their approaches. I mean, perhaps it will take more than a gender sensitization course to do that. I mean, I think it does make sense that, you know, if, if someone has committed a rape, you know, there's a possibility that they may do it again. Mm-hmm. Or is that too much to assume? I mean, I, I, I'm not an expert in this field, so I'm not sure. Not sure? I'm not sure, like, if it's fair <laughs> to suggest that because someone raped once, that they'll do it again. So I think we have to weigh that with the risk of if they do rape again on our canvas. So I agree with you. I don't think there's a black and white answer to that. Mm-hmm. It is about weighing the two harms against each other. And ultimately, I suppose, deciding as a university which harm we could live with. Mm-hmm. It is encouraging that there's at least some pos- there's some attempt at rehabilitation, I guess, of some perp- and perpetrator is such a kind of extreme word, but it's it's a fact, right? If mm-hmm. someone's done something that's violated another person's mm-hmm. sense of safety or sense of self, whether it's physical or discursive, right? That is a perpetration of some kind of act so if if i can just like take the conversation to another you know for me it's not controversial but for some who are listening it may be a controversial topic the question of relationships between staff and students it's clear right that if a if a staff member harasses or rapes or attacks or patronizes or whatever a colleague right there's a kind of fair playing field you know one is perpetrating and one can then complain and various steps can be taken and the same i guess between students but what about in the situation of relationships that are a little bit ambiguous between staff and students? Is there a clear policy on whether relationships are allowed between staff and students at FITS or at any other universities that you, that you know of? So the Declaration of Interests policy at 2.5 or 5.2 clause, clause 5.2, speaks specifically to special relationships. So if a lecturer or tutor is in a relationship with a student, they have to declare that to their line manager. And there's a form that they need to complete and that the student needs to complete. In a relationship with any student or the student that they are teaching? Any student. Any student. Yeah. If the student then is one that they are teaching, the student must be moved to a different class so that there's no question that academically the students benefiting from the relationship. So that's where we are at the moment. But CHAC is the Sexual Harassment Advisory Committee are working on a policy that would ban relationships between undergrads and lecturers, tutors, all that stuff. So can you tell us more about this proposed policy? What are the motivations behind it? Why does the advisory committee consider it necessary to ban relationships between undergrad students and staff members? So partly because of 2013, right? Mm -hmm. It was evident that there were predators on campus who were targeting young, vulnerable women who 
did not feel like they could say no or push back against what was happening. And we don't know 100% that all the predators were got rid of in 2013, and I think it would be naive to believe that. So the best way to ensure that students are not taken advantage of and feel that there's something that backs how they're feeling, there must be policy in place that says, if you're an undergrad student, you cannot be in a relationship with a lecturer, a tutor, a professor, whatever the case is. It just, it, it draws a very clear line for everyone that allows, in my opinion, that gives a voice to young, vulnerable students. Because this is also who the predators were targeting. And I think that's also an element of power, hey? Definitely. Because you coming from high school, you coming to university, and then there is this person who's highly educated that you envy and look upon as a role model. Mm -hmm. If the relationship is not properly monitored and regulated, then students are likely to be violated. And that's why it's important that we need to manage their relationship. So it's a question of abuse of power or potential yeah. abuse of power mm -hmm. by lecturers and professors and even tutors who mm -hmm. are often postgrad students who mm -hmm. wield a lot of influence not only over the progression of students, like will they pass this test or do well in this assignment or you know, go to the next level of their degree, but also mm -hmm. kind of morally and socially yeah. there's a huge amount of, of influence. So it's about trying to protect undergrads from an abuse of that power. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have to say, I personally think it's a no-brainer. I think it's so obvious that there's a potential for abuse of power from mm -hmm. lecturers towards students and that, that students do need to be protected by that. But some might disagree with me. But no, we oh. know that some disagree. <laughs> Feel we're policing adults, yeah. that students at 18 are mature enough to make decisions. Um, you know, it comes back to what Maria says. If someone you idolise shows a little extra attention to you at 18, it's so easy for that to move from flirting into now you're having sex with this individual against your will. Mm. You know, it's it's so easy for that to happen. But there is, there is the feeling that our office is trying to police adults. And mm. I'm okay with that because I think that the the harm to young vulnerable individuals is so much greater than us being seen as some sort of watchdog. I also think it's a question of consent, right? Like, is like if we define consent as, you know, an enthusiastic and explicit, yes, I want to do this with you now, um, is it possible for someone who is potentially under the sway or influence of someone more powerful than them to fully consent in that way? Right. And for me, that's where the difficulty comes in. I mean, I, I'm an associate professor. I teach a lot of undergrads. You know, how do I know? Like, if I had this idea that I wanted to date one of my undergrad students, like, how could I really know that they really, 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 truly are consenting to what I'm suggesting when I'm the person with the power yeah. over their learning environment, whether it's directly or indirect? I mean, they might be in engineering. Mm hmm. And they might think, oh, there's no link, but there is a, a kind of societal influence on that. Well, this is why we're trying to get the policy through. And yeah. so what are the processes involved in trying to get that policy through? And, and also just kind of a, a linked question, are there any comparative policies in place at other institutions that you know about? I mean, is WITS following in the lead of other institutions who've successfully done this, or are we trying to break new ground here? 
Honestly, I'm not sure locally mm. if there are rules in place. I know that in the States there are universities that have a full ban on student-staff relationships. And that's sort of where we're getting the idea for it from. Yeah, I'd misspeak if I were to mention mm. like uh, local campuses. I'm not actually sure. I think South African universities have a lot of work to do. I mean, a lot of like self-reflection to do mm. on this on this issue. No, definitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, some un- universities are still operating in terms of the old policies mm-hmm. that we used to have at this university. So some universities don't have offices like the gender equity office. And we are more than happy to work with them, to help them look and reflect at their structures. And we've had some requests yeah. from other universities to say, can you help us look, reflect at our own structures? How can we make it better? We are not saying our office is, is it's better. It's a perfect model. Yeah. It's not. But at least we're doing something and we're reflecting and whether there are challenges, we openly acknowledge them and deal with them. Mm-hmm. And that should be the way to go. Absolutely. Well, that's also really exciting that there's this discussion between institutions and mm-hmm. at least some recognition that we are all facing similar problems. What would your advice be to someone who has suffered some form of gender-based violence or harm and is not sure what to do or, or how, to, how to get support? I think it is important, one, to acknowledge what has happened to you. Don't judge it. Don't evaluate it. Don't belittle it. It has happened. It is real and you know it. That's the starting point. Once you've acknowledged it, seek help. Talk to someone who can support you or someone that you can trust. It can be a friend, a family member, a professional, but someone that you can trust. That's very important to help you deal with what has happened to you. But it's also important to realize that you are not alone. This happens to many people, and it is important that you break the silence. Very good advice. Okay, your vision of a university in particular that operates on the principles of gender equality, what would it look like? What would a university that has achieved gender equity look like, feel like? How would it operate? A very safe space. Yeah, I think that would be the key indicator, is safety on campus, Mm -hmm. that individuals whether queer, female, male, could feel that they could move around campus without fear or judgment, which sadly is not where we are at the moment. Mm -hmm. I think we'd see a lot more female professors, um, if we're talking gender equity. (laughs) Female vice chancellor, right? Queer black female (laughs) vice chancellor. Wouldn't we just have arrived as a university? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think that... There'd also just be a lot more black lecturers, uh, not gender equity related, but it, it would bring into the balance of what our university should look like. Um, I think even in the courses that are offered, you'd see more of a balance. So engineering shouldn't have 80% male, 20% female. We should see a better balance in those sort of stuff. Yeah, I think that's what it would look like. And You know, a, a campus where you could dream to be anything really and have the opportunity to do that not because you are a white male or because you are a black female Mm -hmm. but because you are an individual and I think you'd also have men taking responsibility for their behavior and taking a stand against gender-based violence Mm -hmm. wouldn't that be nice that would be wonderful Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
I mean, can we talk about that for a second? Because how do I how do I put this well? I think a lot of men who are listening might feel a little bit defensive, mm-hmm. having heard what we've been discussing up to this point, saying, "Oh, you know, I've never raped anyone. I've never done X or Y or Z. So why why do these women or gender activists mm-hmm. keep complaining about men? It's not fair. How would you articulate like the role that men?" do play even though they're not the bad guys you know necessarily in in perpetuating scenarios where people of other genders are sometimes systematically disadvantaged and left in in vulnerable positions you know silence is just as damaging as actively harming an individual if you are and i i remember meeting with some of our volunteers and we were discussing this if you are at a club and as a guy, and you see a guy drug someone's drink, why do you not stop that? Why don't you go up to the individual and say, don't drink that, it's been drugged, or go to the guy and ask, why is this something that you feel you're allowed to do? So passive also just watching is also problematic. You know, you walk past a group of guys, not all of them are cat listening. So why are the others not telling their friend that that's inappropriate? In the workspace, you know that there's a female who has worked really hard and deserves a promotion, but you won't back her for it. You'd rather just passively sit back and see what happens. So I do, you know, yes, not all men are rapists or harassers or perpetrators, but that doesn't make you innocent. And it's the same for women, you know. If if we sit and watch things happen without getting involved, we're just as guilty as those who are committing the wrong because we're choosing to be silent. So I think, I mean, that's what I would say to guys who say it's unfair that we paint all men with the same brush. I think it's fair to say society's been painted with the same brush. And I think it's important to acknowledge that there are good men in society Mm -hmm. and we need those men to take their rightful place in society by speaking out against gender-based violence. For once, they need to stand up and say, bad things will not be done in my name. So you need to take a stand. Absolutely. And also, you know, for women who are in positions of power to check themselves also, that Mm -hmm. they're not, you know, just assuming certain kinds of privilege Mm -hmm. that may also result in different forms of harm, you know. But Mm -hmm. I think those are really powerful messages to, to the men out there who are listening. It's been a really, really fantastic conversation. Thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing (laughs) all of the important work that you're doing. And we wish you all the best. And um, just to to wrap up, is there, you know, if anyone at WITS or outside of WITS needs to get hold of you for advice, for counseling, to lodge a complaint, or just to kind of touch base and see what you're doing and see how they could support you, how can people get a hold of the Gender Equity Office? Okay, so we have a general email. And that's info.geo at wits.ac.za. And then our office number is 011-717-9790. Super. Great. Thanks again, both of you, for your time. Pleasure. Discrimination on the basis of gender or sexuality is, unfortunately, a reality for many members of many university communities. 
It's reassuring to know that there are people like Maria and Charlene working so hard to support victims of gender-based violence or harassment and to change that status quo. If you'd like to find out more about the Gender Equity Office at WITS, you can contact them on 011-717-9790. And to anyone out there who has suffered some form of gender-based discrimination, please know that you are not alone. There are many people out there who want to support you and help you. Just reach out. My name's Paul. I'm a first-year BA student. My majors are English and History. Um, speaking from a male perspective, I'd say, well, it is definitely a problem. And I don't think there's enough attention being paid towards it. And I definitely think that it should be a priority for the university to address it. Definitely more in a, in a more detailed way. Some of my friend, female friends have been harassed, but then usually the perception is it's not that sort of important and it's not worth reporting, which I also think should be changed, though, even if anything happens, you ought to report it and uh, they should be prosecuted for that. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAWU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at Wits. For more information, visit www.asawu.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Today's show was presented by Mahita Ikani. Research scheduling, editing and production was done by Balungile Mbenyane. Thanks to Maria Wanyane and Charlene Bukas for being our guests on the show, as well as our student voices, Jennifer and Paul, for their time. Jürgen Mikkel created our jingles. <laughs>